like to thank all of our volunteers and particularly our musicians and, and singers. They've worked hard, obviously, to present some of their gift to the Lord and back to us. And now I get to tell you the best part. I get to tell you about Jesus. See, this is real. It's not a cultural tradition. If we're all fictitious, it would be helpful, but ultimately meaningless. Life based on lies and hopeful stories, not worth living. The only life worth living is the life based on truth, on things that actually happened, on people who actually love and care and are present, and that's Jesus. So all I'm going to do is open the Bible with you if you have one with you or, or you want to take one from the seats near you. We're going to book, be in the book of Isaiah, but first let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for those who have come in these three services. Thank you particularly for this final service. May it present you as you deserve to be presented and known. Thank you that I get to speak of a grace and a person that has transformed me. Undeserving me. Thank you. May you, Lord, do what you do for others who have come seeking. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The youngest generation is called Generation Z, and I was listening to a pastor who's a pretty brilliant thinker as well. He's incredibly well-educated and very insightful, and he was talking about how much culture has changed simply because of the advent of technology, especially digital culture, and he said the youngest generation never mind them knowing about the internet. It didn't, they've had it their entire lives. The youngest Americans not only expect the internet, they expect free high-speed Wi-Fi. That's how much things have changed. And every once in a while, as the, the dad of two young men, I occasionally get reminders of just how much culture has changed because of the internet. What I'm reading to you is a text message exchange that, um, or rather a conversation that my wife had with one of my sons that she texted to me to tell me just sometimes how old I am and how much life has changed. Listen to this. My son said to his mother, so when people got married or engaged before there was Instagram or social media, did they have to send out some kind of card or something with a, hey guys, I'm like engaged what? I mean, seriously, how did you send out that many notes? They're called invitations, and we only sent them to the people that were invited to the wedding. We didn't even do save the date cards. And then after we got married, they would put something in the newspaper. And people would read this? Like, sit there and read about what happened? Yes. Man, people were bored before social media. And that's true, we were. Bored occasionally, a lot more peaceful probably. But communication has never been easier. And in having grown up outside of the country, one of the wonderful American traditions that I've come to enjoy is something that, that didn't exist where I grew up. People send birth announcements. In, on our fridge in a place of honor are a couple beautiful pictures with heavy cardstock, 
beautiful little pictures of babies, one of them in costume, right? Highly posed, very artistic, and he's just delightful, and he's like dressed like a football, and it's just, it's, it's wonderful. It's a birth announcement. And all it has in it, the name of the children, the date they were born. Tonight I want to tell you about a birth announcement that's quite different, actually remarkable and miraculous compared to all the birth invitations I've ever seen. It's, fine, it's found in the heart of the Hebrew Scriptures, what Christians have generally called the Old Testament. It was written by the prophet Isaiah. It was written 700 years before Jesus was born, and that's one of the things that makes this birth announcement so remarkable. It's actually prophetic. No one in the world would dare send a birth announcement long before the birth of the child. It's fraught with too much risk. We can't be sure. We're hopeful and prayerful, but we can't be sure. But because God acted in human history, He actually sat down in writing what He was going to do, in Isaiah's case, 700 years before Jesus lived. King David wrote even earlier, a thousand years before Jesus was born, David was detailing aspects and events in the life of Jesus with details that are exquisite and absolutely miraculous. It's like watching a Swiss timepiece come together. There is absolutely no possible way that this is random. In Isaiah's case, his birth announcement begins in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And mind you, you're reading something that is being read by the original recipient 700 years before Jesus lived. Isaiah 7, verse 14 says this, Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. And right there, from the very first line, you're being told that what is happening here is literally supernatural. The Lord, in other words, God Himself is going to act in human history. And this is one of the things that sets the Christian faith and the claims of Jesus apart from every other kind of religious thinking. God acts in public in the Scriptures both the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures, God acts in public. All other Christian, all other spiritual thinking aside from the Judeo-Christian revelation found in the Bible that you're reading works like this. Some man or some woman studies deeply, has a dream, or has some insight through vision or through profound study, and they leave a private experience or a private encounter or a private revelation, and they go out in public and tell others what they believe they have learned. Scripture's claims are entirely different. God quite literally calls His shots and puts details of what He is going to do long before they occur, which is why Isaiah 7, chapter 7, verse 14 is so supernatural. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. In other words, He will act in a miraculous way that will be seen and understood by ordinary people. It's a sign, a miracle. And here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Well, that's impossible. And that's the point. The claims of God and the actions of God in human history are on their face, unapologetically supernatural, because it is God who is acting. 
The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And for whatever reason, the translators of the Hebrew Scriptures have traditionally left that last word untranslated. It's in Hebrew, not English. If it's familiar to you, it's only because it's so woven into American culture. But it literally means something extraordinary. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name. And this begins to tell you who Jesus is. Emmanuel literally means God with us. Which tells you something else extraordinary about the claims of Christ and what God has done as recorded in Scripture. See, every religious thinking, all other spiritual thoughts, whether it's a major world religion or a book that you can find after after the Christmas holiday is over at Barnes & Noble, all other spiritual thinking and religious thought tells you that God, should He exist, or however many there are, has a certain standard for men and women to reach. And what that religious thinking is telling you to do is, here's the standard, here's what you must do, and here are the rules for you to climb your way up. Whatever you call religion, or whatever you call spirituality, that's what it all boils down to. It's a series of do's and don'ts. It's things that you have to do to climb up. When Isaiah says in the seventh chapter of his prophecy, that the name of this son born of a virgin will be called God with us, it tells you something entirely different. It tells you not that you have to climb up, but that God himself has come down. He's come down to your level. He is quite literally becoming a man to enter your experience, to suffer as you're going to see your griefs, your sorrows, and actually bear your sins. Two chapters later in Isaiah 9, verse 6, Isaiah says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is something else that's remarkable about this supernatural birth announcement. See, the birth announcements that we send and the ones that I treasure and keep, these beautiful little babies, all they will feature is the child's name, but there's no claims of what the child's going to do. It's much too early. Nobody says, this is our baby boy, Daniel, and he will soon be president of the United States. This is our daughter, Abigail. She will have brilliant insights into disease, and she is the one who is going to cure cancer. Nobody says that. It's too much of an expectation to put on a child. Because God is acting in human history, Isaiah tells you on the front side what this child who is born, what this son who is given is going to do. The government shall be upon his shoulder. In other words, his kingdom will someday expand to the point that he rules. And his name shall be called... We all choose good names for our children. Nobody wants to give their child a name that will make their way more difficult in the world. But look at these names. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's a single name, Isaiah says. 
Four titles that together make one name. What's the point? This Jesus, born of a virgin, the very Son of God, the God who has come down, the God who is with us, His character is so incomparable, His skill and His gifts so vast that they have to be described in many different ways. He's a wonderful counselor. And for many of us who ultimately came to love and trust Jesus, it was meeting Him first as a wonderful counselor that drew us because truly, He has wonderful counsel and guidance to give. And if you're already following Jesus, make a resolution now that you won't spend a day next year without sitting quietly before Jesus and taking in some of His counsel. But He's more than a counselor. Isaiah says He is mighty God. In other words, this baby born in a manger, born of a virgin, is actually worthy of worship. He is, though the Son of God, He also has qualities that make Him call, that make it fair to call Him an everlasting Father. Whatever does that mean? Well, one of the tragedies that that all of us face is someday losing our fathers. This is an eternal father, and fatherhood at its best protects and provides. It doesn't hurt and harm. It doesn't terrify. It shelters and provides and nurtures and guides. And as Jesus, the grown man, begins to make his way through his ministry, and I read the historical accounts of his life found in this same Bible, they're called Gospels, I discover that Jesus is just that. He is continually providing and protecting both for strangers and for His own, so much so that on the night He was arrested, He spoke and acted miraculously so that His terrified disciples, one of whom would go on to deny Him, could escape with their lives. And Isaiah says He's the Prince of Peace. This is all that Jesus is. He gives people peace with God and He brings relationships among people. So as I've read Isaiah's birth announcement in these two chapters early in his prophecy, it makes it all the more shocking when I keep reading this long prophecy to come to the 53rd chapter and discover what happened to this son that was given to us, this child that was born, this sign that was given from God. It's not the sort of thing that anyone would wish for their child, because Isaiah 53 speaks now in past tense. And don't be confused, these things are still, from Isaiah's point of view, still in the future. He is still writing, looking 700 years forward. But they're written in the past tense because they are so certain that Isaiah is quite literally writing something in the future as if it had already occurred, as if it were already history. And this is what happened to Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And maybe like so many people I've talked to for the last two weeks, you're making the best of this holiday season, but it's shot through with sorrow and grief for you. Remember that the God who came down, the God who is with us, is described from the very beginning as someone who will be despised and rejected so that he can be called a man of sorrows and a man acquainted with grief. Here was Jesus' human experience while He was on earth. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4 tells you why this happened. Surely he has borne our griefs. Born is an unusual word, but it means that he has carried them. He has welcomed that burden as his own. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Why did all this happen? Because if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, you know that the one who was initially worshipped and drew wide-eyed shepherds and angelic choirs, and two years later, wise men from a land far away that came bearing strange gifts that spoke of royalty and worship. That same once-worshipped child is going to grow into a hated man. And the public will look on him and consider him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Why is this happening? Verse 5 and 6, which is the heart of Isaiah's prophecy, tells you. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. In other words, the Christmas event Because make no mistake, it's more than a story. It's an event. It is something that actually occurred. What God is initiating is the greatest exchange, the greatest trade in human history. He is taking upon Himself, into Himself, and putting on His Son the sorrows, the grief, the sin, the wickedness, the lostness of His fallen creation so that our punishment that we deserved is falls instead upon Jesus, and verse 5 says, brings us peace so that the wounds He received turn into our healing. Verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to His own way. And if you're the slightest bit self-aware and you have a measure of humility, I can't imagine anyone reading those two lines and not understanding their truthfulness. You see, the reason people become self-righteous in religion is they compare their lostness to the lostness of others and find their lostness not all that bad. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That means that there are as many ways as being being separated and apart from God as there are people in the world. And it doesn't do much good if you're genuinely lost to say, well, at least I'm lost in a different way than my friend. Everyone, Isaiah says, all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But here's the exchange. The Lord has laid on him. On who? On the child who was born, on the son who was given on the one who would be called a wonderful counselor and mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And this is the gift that Jesus offers. The traditional Christmas presents that power our economy and push most American businesses finally into the black right at the end of the year. All of those things are only a pale reflection and a small reminder ignored by many that Christmas began with a sacrificial gift 
the greatest gift that God ever could have given, the gift of Himself, the life, death, and resurrection of His own Son to take our iniquity, take our punishment, and give us instead His peace and His righteousness. And Jesus knew this. He embraced it. He lived it. Which is why when I come to the end of Isaiah's prophecy, I read in Isaiah 61 these words. And again, it's 700 years earlier, but if I compare it with the Gospel of Luke and I read the careful work of that historian Luke who gave an account of the life of Jesus after carefully investigating and talking to many eyewitnesses so that he could give a faithful record of who Jesus was and what he had done, I read in Luke 4 that Jesus goes back to his hometown synagogue of Nazareth and he stands up to read the Scriptures and he opens the scroll of Isaiah to this very place. And here is what Jesus says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke says, Jesus finished that reading and turned to the crowd and said, today this scripture is fulfilled right in front of you. That's who he is. Why was he rejected in Nazareth? Why is he ignored, set aside, and rejected today? Because people who are actually separated from God have grown used to it. And they will not acknowledge their poverty. They can feel sometimes their brokenheartedness, but they will not give it to Him. They do not believe they are captives or bound, or if they do, they think they can free themselves. See, if I could be very plain with you, Jesus puts every person who hears Him at a crossroads. And He's patient and kind and loving. But make no mistake, He's presenting Himself and calling out for a verdict. He's calling out for a commitment. Because later when I read the Gospel of John, and this is the last passage I'll read to you tonight, I see Jesus full grown with the miracles of God and having done the signs and wonders of God to prove exactly who He was and carefully fulfilling all the prophecies who were written about Him, including those who were beyond His control, for instance, the place of His birth. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And here's an offer to you. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You know, there's no one in the world, probably, who can unconditionally make you that promise. Even the most secure and sacred of our human relationships are broken. They're broken by sin, and if they're not broken by sin, they're eventually broken by death. Jesus stands alone in human history, a public sign from God, a publicly manifested preaching healing, suffering, dying, and rising again sign from God, the very Son of God. Not because He had sins of His own, but because He was taking mine and yours so that 2,000 years later, after keeping those promises and fulfilling these prophecies, He could say to you, whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. Why don't people come? 
for all kinds of reasons. I remember mine. Mine, ultimately, if I'm honest with you, boiled down to a simple fact. I was proud. I wanted to follow my own way. I thought I could figure it out. I thought I was good enough. So honestly, with as much love as I can find in my heart, but with clarity because of the urgency and the importance of the gift that is being offered to you, if you're thinking that you can find your own way and save yourself, take it not from me, take it from God, you can't. You're not going to make it. You won't find your way out. Because Jesus has praised and announced in Scripture and even in our songs as a reflection of that Scripture, not merely as a helper, not only as an example, but mostly, of, mostly and most supremely a Savior, a rescuer, one who comes down to where people are, where grief and sorrow and loss and sin and ignorance of all kinds, including spiritual, are found, and He presents Himself as the actual truth, the actual life, and the only one in the universe who can make you this promise. If you will come to Him, He will by no means, He will never cast you out. So remember, I'm just the man telling you about the man. My simple invitation to you is to come and follow him. Not to change your religion, not to make a commitment or a New Year's resolution to try a little harder. God himself knows that all of those resolutions, however well intended, are actually dead ends. They're non-starters. They will never work. That's why Jesus came to be with us. That's why Jesus came to rescue us. And if you will humble yourself, give up on yourself, and start trusting him, he'll do what he came to do. He'll save you and forgive you. And all the things I've told you, and things that I myself don't yet understand about him, they'll all be true for you because this is the gift he offers himself. Let's pray. Before we sing our final song and our church worships and honors God through our giving, could I just give you a moment of personal reflection? Maybe you came just to honor a social obligation. I don't know. It's literally not my business. But maybe God has been working in your life to this point to orchestrate things in your life that you're ready now to tell Jesus that you, as with the understanding He's given you, and maybe you don't feel like it's much, and you still have a lot of questions, but you're ready to trust Him and say to Him that you believe Him. One man in the gospel said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I've always been struck by that request. Jesus, I don't really know what's going on, but I believe I still feel unbelief in me. Help with that, please. Maybe you could start there. And humble yourself, as every human being has to, if they're going to follow him. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means you can't lead means he has to take charge. And you would say to him in prayer, Jesus, I understand and I believe that I'm a sinner, that I'm lost in my own way, but I believe you're a savior. And I don't understand everything about you, but I believe you. And I want the promises. I want the grace. I want the gift I've heard about.
please give it to me. Help me to follow you. Save me. There's no magic words. There's just a move of faith, of trust, from trusting yourself and having faith in yourself to trusting and having faith in him instead. If you'll take that disposition with him, he'll save you tonight. He'll make you a new man. He'll make you a new woman. It's what he came to do. I pray that you will. And I'll be quiet now so that you can talk to him in your own terms, in your own words. But remember his promise. If you come, he'll never cast you out. Lord Jesus, since you're here and you're real, I pray that you would help and come alongside those who are right on the edge of believing and trusting you. I remember that struggle. I pray that they would win, that you'd give them the strength and the grace to trust you, to welcome you tonight as their Savior. We thank you, Lord, for the ability to have anything to give. It's not repayment. It's worship, it's gratitude, it's obedience so that we may extend to others the good news you've extended and you've given to us. Receive this song and this giving and these prayers of those who seek you in Jesus' name.